0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Today we've got a really interesting passage that you've all heard a number of times. And so we'll start by reading the passage and then perhaps look at some features that you may not have considered um, about this text. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. Jesus said to his disciples, In your prayers do not babble as the pagans do, For they think that by using many words They will make themselves heard Do not be like them Your father knows what you need Before you ask him So you should pray like this Our father in heaven May your name be held holy Your kingdom come Your will be done On earth as in heaven Give us today our daily bread And forgive us our debts As we have forgiven those Who are in debt to us And do not put us to the test, but save us from the evil one. Yes, if you forgive others their failings, your heavenly Father will forgive you yours. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your failings either. Okay, so that's our passage that we're going to take a look at today. And obviously most of this passage is quite familiar because it's the Our Father prayer. So where does this passage come from? Well, Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is an extended sermon that Jesus gives. Basically, the whole point of it is to contrast false righteousness with true righteousness. And Jesus has just finished contrasting how the hypocrites pray, which is to be seen by others, and he just told them how he wants his disciples to pray, which is in private, where only God can see them. So he's just said that, and now he's about to explain what he wants the content of the Christian's prayer to be. So he said you need to do it in private, not to show others how holy you are, and when you pray, you should say these things. So verse 7 at the start here, Jesus said to his disciples, now that's not in the original, it's in the lectionary to make things a bit clearer to us, but in the original, it just continues from where we were at before that. So Jesus is not talking to his disciples per se here. He's talking to a large crowd, so everyone can hear what he's saying. He starts, In your prayers do not babble, or other translations have it as heap up empty phrases, as the pagans do. So this is the key thing. He doesn't just say, do not babble. He says, do not babble as the pagans do. So we need to think about... Well, we need to know what the pagans did in their prayers. So a pagan is someone who worships a different god. And in this culture, the pagans were basically people who worshipped Roman gods in the Roman Empire. And the pagans had a habit of putting all sorts of magic phrases and formulas together in their prayers when they prayed to these Roman gods. So they hoped that by saying these certain formulas and special prayers that their gods would hear them. Their hope was that maybe the gods would hear them if they use the right words. Jesus goes on, for they think that by using their many words they will make themselves heard. So that's what we were just saying about the way pagans use their prayers. Now it's important to say up front, Jesus, because this is often used against sort of Catholic prayers that are pre-prepared. Jesus here is not condemning use using rote prayers or even repeating prayers. He's not condemning either of those things. He is condemning the way the pagans go about prayer, though, which is, uh, well, let's go on and find out. In what sense is the pagan prayer wrong? Verse 8, Jesus says, do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is the key point. So the pagan prayers... They thought that by saying these long prayers, it increased the chances of the gods hearing them. Jesus here says that God knows what you need even before you say the prayer. So it's not like if you say certain words, then God will hear you. He says, Jesus says, you don't want to approach prayer that way because God being your father already knows what you need. So the key message to his disciples, just to reinforce it, is basically this. Don't pray long prayers with the intention of hoping that God will hear you by doing so rather God God knows what you need already so instead your prayers should be like this and now he goes on to describe what he's what their prayers should look like so again just to emphasize what Jesus has just said does not rule out saying particular prayers with a certain intention and Jesus is not ruling out praying repeatedly in order to make prayers more effective so That's actually a general principle of the Christian life. In other places in the Bible, it teaches that you should repeat prayers and that some prayers are more effective than others. So you can look at Psalm 136 and Daniel chapter 3, both cover repetitive prayers. So some prayers are more effective than others, that's certainly true. But Jesus is saying that Christians should never make their prayers long and wordy just because they think that by doing so it will make God more likely to hear, so if a Christian is praying that way, where they think that by saying certain things or by making long prayers, then that's what will make that's what will make God hear them, then that's wrong. Jesus is condemning that. That's the wrong attitude to God and to prayer. Now we're about to start the Our Father here, uh, verse nine. Jesus says, "So you should pray like this." So Jesus is about to give us the Our Father. So in context, why does Jesus give them the Our Father? Well, he's giving them a short, simple prayer, which expresses all of the basic needs of the Christian life, as we'll see. And that's in contrast to the wordy, long prayers that the pagans used. So notice, what's the context here? Jesus has just said, here's the wrong way to pray, using long, wordy prayers like the pagans. Instead, your Christian prayers should look something like this. So, as we'll see, Our Father starts by focusing on God and then moving on to focusing on our needs. So we always start with God first, and that's certainly true for us today. When we pray, start by focusing on God and then move to our needs. Now, as I uh, provide a bit of an exegesis here of the Our Father, we need to, as Catholics, we should know that the Catechism actually provides a very thorough breakdown of the Our Father already. So the last part of the Catechism actually goes through verse by verse of the Our Father and gives all the sort of Catholic applications of every phrase of it. So that's in paragraphs 2759 to 2865 of the Catechism. So there's an entire hundred paragraphs of the Catechism dedicated to the Our Father. So anything I say uh, cannot overrule what the Catechism says. Your first point of reference when you want to know what the Our Father means should be going to the catechism and looking through it verse by verse that way. So in this analysis, what I'm going to do is I just want to highlight a couple of things on the literal sense of the text in terms of what the very words mean that might not be immediately obvious. So Jesus starts the Our Father by saying this, Our Father in heaven. So already here, there's something quite profound. Jesus is telling Christians that they should see God as Father, which was quite a radical concept to Jews. So, Jews at the time, well, in the Old Testament, God is occasionally referred to as Father, but it's not very often. So, most Jews were not comfortable with saying God is Father, because that just seems a little too intimate. But here, Jesus says that Jesus' followers have access to an unusually deep intimacy with God. They can call God their Father, And that's actually even more remarkable because he says our father in heaven. So the father of Christians, the powerful father is in heaven. And that's, um, you know, there's a lot of implications of that. In the original Aramaic, Jesus probably would have used the word Abba. Our Abba in heaven, which is a very intimate word, meaning my personal father. He goes on, may your name be held holy. That's what our, our translation has, but other translations have Hallowed be thy name. So, hallowed and holy are basically the same word. To the Jewish mind, God's name was a way of referring to God himself. So, when it says, May your name be held holy, or hallowed be thy name, it basically means, May you be holy, something along those lines. So, the Jewish hope was that all nations would eventually treat God's name as holy, and we can see that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 to 27. There's this Jewish expectation that one day all the nations will magnify God's name. So what does this phrase mean? May your name be held holy. It could mean one of two things. It could be seen as a hope, as in may your name be treated as holy because God's name is already holy, but maybe it's a hope that people will treat it that way. Or it could just be a straightforward declaration of truth, as in your name is holy. Hallowed is your name. So it depends on how we understand the word be there, hallowed be. Verse 10, your kingdom come. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that that refers to the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus has come to reveal and explain to the Jews. All people are invited today to be a part of expanding God's kingdom. So Jesus goes on, thy will be done. Now that's a continuation of the previous thought. So it's your kingdom come, comma, your will be done. So the idea is God's kingdom will come when God's will is done on earth. They're connected. And it goes on even further, on earth as it is in heaven. So notice what this phrase says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's will is already being done in heaven and it's done all the time. Whatever God wants in heaven is done. And so whenever God's will is done on earth, then the kingdom expands to earth as well. That's a really cool thought, isn't it? The kingdom of God already exists in heaven when God's will is done. And when we choose to make God's will happen on earth, then the kingdom of God expands to earth as well. Verse 11, give us this day our our daily bread. Now, the Greek word here for our daily bread is epiousios, epiousios, and it's very hard to translate. It's not really clear what epiousios means. Because it doesn't appear anywhere else in any other Greek documents from this time. It's not anywhere in the Bible. It's not anywhere in any other documents we've found either. So, scholars reckon they can break down the basics of the word. They've come up with five general proposals. It means one of these five things, but we're not really sure what it means. So, it could mean bread for today. It could mean bread for tomorrow. It could mean bread for existence or bread that we need. ...or even super substantial bread. So there's something special about this bread. It's like the word is trying to convey... ...it's the most basic kind of bread that we need. Our, our bread, the bread that we need. The bread that we need for our very existence... ...is sort of implied by the word. So what is that bread? It could be one of two things. It's not really clear what Jesus means here. It could refer to just physical bread... ...as in part of the prayer here... ...the Christian is asking God... ...to keep meeting their daily physical needs as God did for Israel in the wilderness, where he supplied them with just enough manna that they needed for every day. He didn't give them excess. It was just what they needed. And that's in Exodus chapter 16. So it could be physical bread, but it could also be Jesus is referring to supernatural bread of some kind. And some Catholic scholars have said it's the Eucharist. What Jesus is implying here is he's predicting that the Christians are going to need daily nourishment in the form of the Eucharist. So it could be. It's not entirely clear. Verse twelve, he says, "Forgive us our debts," and uh, Luke has this as sins because his Gentile audience wouldn't understand what it meant by debt. So debt was a Jewish metaphor for sins. So when it says, "Forgive us our debts," it yeah basically means forgive us for our sins. And it calls to mind this image of a lender releasing someone from the debt he owes. When we sin, we owe a debt to God. But when he forgives us, he releases that debt. Notice what this says here. Forgive us our debts. This is part of the petitions of the Our Father. If forgiveness was automatic every time we did something wrong, if God just said, I'll forgive that straight away, then why is it included in the Our Father? It seems like to get forgiveness, even after we've accepted Jesus, if we commit a sin, we need to ask for it. We need to ask for God's forgiveness. It's not automatic. So we can see some Catholic theology starting to come through here. Jesus goes on, as we have also forgiven our debtors. So the full phrase there, just to repeat it, is forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So it presupposes that we've forgiven our debtors. So the phrase basically means, forgive us our sins to the extent that we forgive others. Now that's obviously a lot could be said about that, but that seems to be what's said here. Verse 13, now we get to the really hard phrase that's generated a lot of discussion, particularly in recent times. Do not put us to the test, verse 13, or another translation of that is, lead us not into temptation, or another translation is, do not subject us to the final test. So it's really difficult to work out what the phrase means. Do not put us to the test, or lead us not into temptation. Lots of controversy about this. Uh, You probably would have heard that the Pope changed the wording of this slightly in Italian. So Italian masses now take away the word temptation because they think that implies something wrong about God. So, yeah, if, if the translation did read lead us not into temptation, that could be problematic because that would imply that God could allow us to be tempted. And the letter of James specifically says God does not tempt anyone. So, a teaching of the New Testament is that God doesn't tempt anyone. So, that doesn't seem to be the right translation. But on the other hand, God does test his people sometimes. Absolutely, God tests his people. Um, Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 is an example where God tests people. And then in the wilderness, when Jesus is said to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. So, It's probably true that God doesn't tempt anyone to to sin, that doesn't sound right, but he does lead people into tests of various kinds. So the meaning of this phrase is going to depend on the meaning of the next phrase. So the next thing Jesus says is, but, and that means rather, so do not put us to the test, but deliver us from evil. So it means, do not put us to the test, instead, deliver us from evil. So it modifies the previous phrase. Now again, it's difficult to translate this because some translations have it as deliver us from evil and others say it's save us from the evil one. So if we put together those two phrases, there's a few possible meanings here. So in our lectionary we hear, do not put us to the test, but deliver us from evil. Here's three possible meanings of uh, Jesus' teaching here. It could be, saying to God, do not allow us to fall into the temptations of Satan. Deliver us from his influence. It could mean, do not lead us into temptation. Keep us from all evil. Or it could mean, do not allow us to fall into trials and difficulties. Protect us from all trouble. So it's going to depend on what that word evil means. Is it a general sense of evil or is it evil is in the evil one, because the meaning does change, depending on that. We might never get a proper answer on this one. So, the church doesn't have an official teaching on what the correct translation of the Our Father is. We just say the one that we're most cu- accustomed to in church history during the Mass. Pope Benedict interprets that phrase this way. This is what Pope Benedict says. I know I need trials. When you decide to send me these trials... Please remember that my strength goes only so far. Don't overestimate my capacity and be close to me with your protecting hand when it becomes too much for me. So that's quite a nice um, interpretation of the passage. And obviously Pope Benedict takes it to mean trials in a general sense and evil in a general sense. So that's the phrase. And Jesus finishes the prayer there. That's the end of the prayer. And now he addresses the crowd directly. So he's finished the Our Father. And now Jesus turns to the crowd and makes a further point. He says, yes, if you forgive men their failings, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Notice forgiveness is conditional. If you forgive men their failings, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And then he goes on. If you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your failings either. We don't often hear this part of it. Um, We don't like to talk about it, but Christians must keep this in mind. If we don't forgive others, then God will not forgive us either. So how exactly that works on a heavenly or spiritual level is a bit of a mystery, but it does at least tell us that our actions in this life can gain merit before God. What we do matters in the eyes of God, and that he he will overlook our offenses if we strive to do the same to others. That's clearly what Jesus is teaching. Now, when Jesus says this, he's reiterating something he said earlier in the Our Father. Remember, earlier in the Our Father he said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who uh, as we have forgiven the debts of others. So it's the same teaching. So why has Jesus at the end of the prayer emphasized this particular part of the Our Father and not another part? Probably because maybe this is the part that the Jews struggled with at, at this time. Maybe some of the Jewish audience believe that God would forgive any sin automatically because they're Jews, because they're his chosen people. So Jesus is really stressing here, God will not forgive you unless you forgive others. So that's uh, the exegesis of the Our Father. Where does the Catechism cover this? Well, the first thing I want to say is, again, the entire last part of the Catechism, paragraph 2759 to 2856, is an entire section on the Our Father. So that's the first spot to look. But it also appears in some other really clear places in the Catechism. So I'll read out some verses that are not within... Sorry, some paragraphs from the Catechism that are from elsewhere. Paragraph 2608 in Jesus Teaches Us How to Pray says, From the Sermon on the Mount onwards, Jesus insists on conversion of heart, reconciliation with one's brother before presenting an offering on the altar, love of enemies, and prayer for the persecutors, prayer to the Father in secret, not heaping up empty phrases, prayerful forgiveness from the depths of the heart, purity of heart, and seeking the kingdom before all else. This filial conversion is directed entirely to the Father. Paragraph 2668 in How We Can Pray to Jesus says, The invocation of the holy name of Jesus is the simplest way of praying always. When the holy name is repeated often by a humbly attentive heart, the prayer is not lost by heaping up empty phrases, but holds fast to the word and brings forth fruit with patience. So notice there that the teaching of the catechism is clearly that certain prayers, even if they're repetitive, do not count as heaping up empty phrases. Paragraph 4.4.3 has a brief discussion of the fact that we can call God our Father. And then in paragraph 2.7.3.6 picks up a similar theme. It says, Are we asking God for what is good for us? Our Father knows what we need before we ask Him, but He awaits our petition because the dignity of His children lies in their freedom. We must pray then with His Spirit of freedom to be able to truly know what He wants. Paragraph 268, which is in the discussion about the attributes of God, particularly his um, omnipotence, it says, Of all the divine attributes, only God's omnipotence is named in the creed. To confess this power has great bearing on our lives. We believe his might is universal, for God who created everything also rules everything and can do everything. God's power is loving, for he is our father. So the reference there to our Father is connected with Omnipotence in uh, the Catechism. Paragraph 2632 is in the section about the prayer of petition. It says, Christian petition is centred on the desire and search for the kingdom to come, in keeping with the teaching of Christ. There is a hierarchy in these petitions. We pray first for the kingdom, then for what is necessary to welcome it and cooperate with its coming. By prayer, every baptized person works for the coming of the kingdom. And then lastly, paragraph 2659 has a discussion about the word today, and it links it to our daily bread in the Our Father as well. So all of those are really interesting um, paragraphs in the Catechism. There's a lot that could be said about the Our Father. We've just touched on um, some basics of what the text looks like thanks again for listening. If you think some people would benefit from hearing this exegesis of the Our Father, I'd love it if you could share it with them. And remember, you can send in your questions at any time, and the links for all of that are in the show notes. We'll see you again tomorrow.